Hello, you are with Impact. I am your host, Brittany Davis. And today we are having a very special Black Lives Matter episode. Black Lives Matter, if you didn't know, started in 2013 after Trayvon Martin's murderer was acquitted. And the movement started then as far as the Black Lives Matter hashtag. Um, Black lives have always mattered. Unfortunately, it's 2020 and we're still talking about it. Impact did a special season called Black Lives Matter, and I have the three playwrights with us today, and they're going to be talking about their plays. I'm going to let you all introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about your play that went on in the Black Lives Matter season. And I am going to start with the Carla Stillwell. My name is Carla Stillwell. I am a playwright, director. I have started an organization called the Stillwell Institute for Contemporary Black Art, where I hijack white people's money and give it to black artists to do black shit. I used to be the artistic director of this lovely theater company, Impact, and they are still my family. And I'm so happy to be here with you all this evening. Thanks for inviting me. I'm Aaron Todd Douglas. I am the director of the University of Minnesota slash Guthrie Theater BFA acting program. I was honored to write the play Upstate, adapted from a novel by Kalisha Buchanan, directed by Miss Carla Stilwell. My name is Chef Aku. I am uh, one of the founding members of Impact Theater Company. My submission to the Black Lives Matter season in 2014-15 was a piece called Feral that was written by our very own Carla Renette Stillwell. <laughs> Thank you, Shepsu. We're gonna talk to our playwrights of the Black Lives Matter season about your show, what you wanted people to notice, what you wanted to say. And I would love to hear some reactions, um, reviews that you received about your show that season. So let's start. Uh, Carla, is your old timers, is it? Are you coming back to some stuff you it's, remember? It's coming, it's coming back. Okay. It's coming back. So, All right. as long as I don't have to talk about they two shows, because I clearly, <laughs> that was <laughs> Apparently, you don't even remember <laughs> directing them. So, let's talk about the Listen, one you wrote. Right. Let's talk about the one I wrote, because I don't remember directing it. Um, <laughs> okay. um, so, I wrote a show called The CBS is Burning, a musical. Um... Law. And I wrote the show, Law, the CBS Burn. And I wrote the show because Wolf Blitzer pissed me off <laughs> during the Ferguson riots. Okay. So I'm watching the riots, which I stopped doing at this point. They're fair and balanced news, right? You know, you right, gonna you right. gonna give you gonna give the you gonna play devil's advocate with this shit. Okay, whatever. So I'm watching it and. They've glossed over what happened to that. Uh, well, that was the Freddie Gray one in Ferguson, right? Because they're all running together. Yes. Um, they they glossed over. They accused. They they get, did all the vile shit about what kind of problem, drug addict, criminal, all of this that he was excuse making. But when they set that CVS on fire, Wolf Blitzer lost his fucking mind. The CBS is burning. They're burning down the CBS. <laughs> and he went on about that fucking building burning 
mm. for 20 minutes. Much like something that's just happening recently. Hmm. And I was inspired in that moment because I, I'm, I'm, I'm a comedian and I'm a satirist, you know? Um, and I was like, how ridiculous is this? That this man has lost his life violently and tragically. Mm-hmm. And you, all you people can focus on is this burning of a building, of a corporation that has more than enough insurance and resources to rebuild within the week. How is this taking up any of our news space when this black man has been murdered? So that was where the idea came from. Okay. um, For CVS. Uh, Because, and and it's interesting that here I am today, um, if anybody follows me on Facebook, you know I've been clock, 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 clowning. Because we keep having the same conversation about rioting and looting and those people in the businesses, but we're not talking about the dead bodies. We're not talking about Breonna Taylor being shot in her own fucking bed. People are still saying shit about Blue Lives Matter. Um, Carla, I'm, we're going to get back to this, and um, I wanted to set you off with your favorite uh, word. Um, so I'll come back to you about post-racial, one of your favorite words, Oh, as she's about to have a seizure. But we're going to talk about that in a minute. Aaron Todd Douglas wrote Upstate, and I would love to hear about your process with this play. Well, I, I think for me, the beauty of the piece, um, outlining <clears throat> its raw honesty, um, it was brutally beautiful for me. Um, and I think it was charming in that it was it centered on a young man um, who was incarcerated for most of the play but it was actually about the protagonist was a young woman and we followed her and i thought it was a great story that that centered black women the most educated demographic in this country and that was a story that wasn't getting told a lot so it came at a familiar trope of a black man in jail but the the way the story unfolded um uh, how it came together um it, it seemed as a unique um story and storytelling structure um, the entire book was written in a series of letters, of love letters. It was primarily above and beyond anything else, a love story, which we don't see nearly enough about our, our young black people. Um, so I wanted to highlight that. And um, it also, after seeing young Asia Martin in Law of the CBS is, is burning to see her in this piece, it was just, oh my goodness, that child just like butterfly, like right in front of our eyes. It was it was beautiful to behold. Thank you. And Shepsun, last but not least, your show of that season was Feral. And can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, sure. The um, show Feral was about um, a young Black woman. I don't even know if we can call her a young Black woman. I think the character was 17 years old. Um, she had an intensely uh, bonded relationship with her older brother who was in college. And her brother um, is a graffiti artist who's out in the middle of the night tagging um, all over Chicago. This, what we have now come to call a meme. I don't think we were quite calling it a meme back then, but uh, tagging this meme called Feral all over the wall really is his, his call to awareness and um, has an encounter with police officers that is murky for much of the play. 
and winds up dead. And, and we watch her, the 17-year-old girl, sort of struggle with what it means to have lost her brother, what it means for her family to, uh, family is actually, uh, the household is split, so she's staying with her father, and their parents are divorced, and she's watching the family sort of grapple with the loss of their son, grapple with the media's intrusion into their life. And, um, and the truth of the show is that the child herself is pretty much isolated and abandoned to deal with her own grief because nobody has the time to attend to her emotional needs mm -hmm. because they're all busy trying to deal with their own grief and more specifically, the ever-present and invasive demands of the media to have at the family and and uh, um, and basically get into this whole sort of victim porn that we do now. Um, in, in when these things happen, when we want to try it out every family member and and peel them open for the world to consume their grief as though it was entertainment. And so the show is is a good hard look at at what that's like to live inside of of that tempest, right? Like, what is it like for you to be that when you're not even a fully formed adult yet? And your adults in your life aren't really able to be there for you because the world has sort of spirited them away from you emotionally. So, um, so that's what that one's about. How do you feel that the um, the audience members and even the critics responded to the show? Are you still with me on Farrell? Yes. Um, well, first of all, we had a absolutely amazing actress named Victoria Allen, who had just, I believe it just finished up at the theater school. Mm -hmm. And the unique actor torture of that play is, of course, it's because it's one of mine, it's, it's non-linear. So you, you got your scenes based around what these events mean to her, not based in chronological order. And that actress had to whiplash herself a good 30 times in that play mm -hmm. from moments of absolute normalcy in a teenager's life to abs moments of absolute grief and torment. And she was amazing at it. The show rode on her shoulders. I thought that um, she was literally a gift on, from on high to give that to us. And audiences received it really well in that it's a show about loss and grief in the community and the family. And it's a really bizarre thing, which I'm sure all of us are going to talk about today, about putting up a show that sort of centers on what are the worst days in the lives of the characters that, that, uh, that we have on stage, while the audience itself is just as traumatized by the issues that we're looking at. So we're used to watching characters be traumatized, but we're not used to sharing that trauma with them in real time and it was, it was pretty unprocessed. The, the last time I think we did that, we did a series of plays loosely connected around Katrina when we had uh, the Hurricane Katrina moment and watching all of those plays sort of click out and the audience literally like in the audience trying to figure out is it too soon to be talking about it and Carla can talk about her show more specifically because hers had the hardest road of all of ours because she is satirizing the media and how it's dealing with our community and grief. Drama is a lot easier to do than trying to take a group of traumatized people and satirize the very thing that is causing their trauma. Mm -hmm. That's not a segue from heaven, sister, what is? <laughs> well, thank you for that segue, Chef Sue and Carla. How did you navigate yeah. that? 
<laughs> how did you navigate that idea of the satire about this, of course, serious issue that has happened in the past and is still happening? And the fact that we're talking about a a season that happened six years ago and we, we are still, we're back to this again and the same issues. But anyway, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, uh, I, I kind of see the world backwards anyway. Okay. So I'm looking at this, the, the, this issue and there were a couple of other things that went on at that time that okay. made it easy to take the shots um, and to do a satire about police murder. One of them was the way in which the media spun it to pit black people against each other. Mm -hmm. Because there was the mother that snatched her child off the street, right? When he was protesting. Um, And the media went on and on about how she was a wonderful mother and and she controlled her son. And so what I, I was like, that's, that's the entry for this piece. To, so we got to watch this young black man, who Max Thomas, who did an amazing job, mm-hmm. um, watch the news and the ridiculous nature of the way it escalates the way the media escalates the drama, the way the lies about the victim come out. You know, it's, it's just so ridiculous. It's so over the top. It was actually very easy because in my play, the character who was killed by police when he was getting a carton of milk, by the time the story was told, he was a gay gang member and he ran a gay gang <laughs> in the Chicago street. The gay gang. Because that's literally how the stories go, right? Yeah. So yeah. you got to you got your knee on this man's neck, right? But mm-hmm. you wanna you wanna drop an autopsy that says he had underlying health issues. So because this man so he didn't die from that knee on his neck for eight and a half minutes. He clearly had high blood pressure, which means Reggie ass is gone in like 30 seconds, you know? Which is and their own fault. But the black and people that's their the own fault high blood pressure. And yeah. It, and it, and yeah, the high blood pressure is, our, is, the, is black people's fault, the, the lack of medical care, whatever. So that was my entry point with CBS. It's that when, if you think about these stories, each one of them is more and more, it makes no good common sense. The stories are ridiculous. It was very easy to take the, take the comedic route with it. And sometimes people listen differently to music. Sure. sure. People listen differently to comedy. It hits different buttons. So you can write a piece, and I think all three of us went through this in our Black Lives Matter season. You can write a piece that points directly at the situation and it's like, I'm preaching at you, I'm preaching at you, I'm preaching at you. Or, like Aaron did, tell the story of a young man incarcerated through the love letters, right? Mm-hmm. Tell the story, as, as Shepsu did, through this young girl who lost her brother Right. to unnecessary, like, 
tell the story about this over-the-top black mama who's trying to protect her son mm. from these streets, you right. know, like that has decided that and that has bought all of the Kool-Aid she's been fed as a black woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And has continued to bring her toxin to her own child. Like it's easier, really, to tell the stories that way. I'm I'm thinking about what you said about <laughs> like how you heightened and how you took it further than, you know, buying the milk than he was in the gay gang and all this stuff and how they're saying, comparing that to actually saying that, um, like you're saying, the the knee on this man's neck for almost nine minutes is his fault. And then I read something that he actually had the COVID-19 and was recovering. And that this man recovered from a an actual um, pandemic and then died at the hands of the police department, the other pandemic that is against Black folks. It's, it's crazy. I was going to say that as far as like the news, what about Aaron? What are your thoughts about where Black Lives Matter is today? I mean, well, um, to, to keep the conversation moving forward, I, I would say that um, where it is today and where it intersects with upstate, I, I, I'm always minded of a point that Reggie made in his uh, dramaturgy about upstate. He challenged me to interrogate whether or not his innocence or guilt was important at all. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I loved it and I was haunted by it. And at the time, for whatever reason, I didn't feel, um, I didn't feel comfortable departing from the source material enough. And that, and that still has haunted me since because that is where we are. You know, the guilt or innocence, that's besides the fucking point. It always has been beside the point, but they use that point of departure always to indict us. Whether or not he has been in jail, you know, Mr. Floyd, whether or not he's been in jail, or whether or not he's a martyr, and was he a good enough Negro to be the flashpoint for this entire social unrest? And that's besides the point. You keep changing the narrative. Mm-hmm. We're trying to. The, trying. We keep trying to. Beyond what's really important, and what's really important is this man's life, his freedom, and his dignity. And, the, and those are the things that we've always been fighting for. That's always been the battleground. And that is always the, the sort of the flashpoint, the departure point where we get distracted, even those in our own community, God help us, who refuse to see the forest for the trees. We're always talking about burning things and rioting things. And, and again, I could give a damn. Uh, sometimes forests need to burn down in order for new growth to happen. I mean, I'm not comfortable setting the fire myself, but I understand those who feel it necessary to set a fire. I understand. I'm not going to say anything bad about them. I'm not going to do it. You can try to hem me in, but I'm not going to do that, you know? I, I would never try to hem you in with that, but I told No, you. not you, not you. But, but I'm saying, they you want know, us good Negroes, you know, with a, with a shirt with a collar on it you know, in a couple of decades under our belt, they always want us to come and condemn the rioting and, and tell who tell everybody what, what's the right way to protest and what's not the right way to protest. And um and we've we've got to we've got to stop playing that trick bag. We gotta get out of that trick bag. Right. <laughs> right. Carla's <laughs> rocking, so I must be doing a hashtag fuck <laughs> it's, it's I'm a- about to go all the way to church. Yeah. Don't get me started. It's an interesting thing, right? So, so, so this is Shep's who's talking. So I know y'all are trying to track who's talking when. Uh, so, it's 
first of all, just just full disclosure, I am so incredibly pissed at my at my mayor, and I think that she caused my city to burn for uh, four extra days because she's told that this black woman gets in front of my people uh, in the city where we have watched the police execute Laquan McDonald, in the city where we have watched Burge send scores and scores of black men to prison through forced confessions and coercive acts. Yes. And she berates us in the in the public media across the world that, I'm sorry, you niggas are embarrassing me because you don't know how to act. And so now I have to tell you that you cannot behave this way to the police. So this is my first, my first line that always pisses me off. And this is not how you protest. And why would you bring so-and-so to a peaceful protest? And my first statement is, well, who the fuck said it's a peaceful protest? Because last time I checked, you had motherfuckers with armored cars, water cannons, rubber bullets, mace. Fuck, it feels like Bull Connor is out there with some fucking German shepherds and a fucking water hose. And then you're going to look at my people like, oh, we know what's in the street. And how dare us come prepared to deal with that shit. So that hypocrisy blew my fucking mind that any black woman elected to office in this town could actually stand her ass in front of a microphone. But wait, then it gets worse. Then two days later, after they drag a black woman from her car at the fucking Brickyard Mall on Narragansett and Diversity Dam, and I'm calling it all out, and whoop her ass and put their knee on her neck Two days later, does my mayor get on the television and say, oh my God, how embarrassing it is that the police, and you don't know how to act with these. No, she talks about processes and being calm and how we can't rush to judgment. And so all I was left with, and I have to say this out loud, is fuck you for telling anybody how you think they're supposed to react when all you're doing is trying to make sure we get reelected. And that's the prison line that we're talking about with upstate. That's this watching the absurdity of the public acts in front of us, and that is watching people absolutely and completely ignore the impact on these actual families of these acts. And this time, and I just call it what it is, that was some, some bullshit-ass white supremacy in blackface, because that's what it was. This whole idea, this whole concept of a peaceful protest, if I hear the word peaceful one more time, I'm going to, it's, it's shaking my peace. Yes. At what point do I get to lose my patience? Yes. We are 401 years into this experiment with Negroes in this country. At what point do I get the opportunity to be upset? Right. What time, when, when is the hour that I get to lose my patience? Yes. Why do you insist on even defining the word peace to, to mean only what you say it's going to mean rather than what the word actually means. Right. right, because I think that these young people, and this is some unpopular opinion, hashtag unpopular. The fact that nobody's residence burned, the fact that they burned up no blocks, the fact that they hurt no grandma, the fact that they did not destroy their neighborhoods is not my, I'm very proud of them. Because the reality is, I drove out the streets the next, I drove the streets Monday. Mm -hmm. And what I saw was Walmart, Target, Walgreens. I saw businesses, large corporate businesses who have been in the black community and have not contributed to that community on fire. 
I nobody burnt up shit. You burning up the fucking jewel. You didn't ruin my neighborhood. You didn't destroy my neighborhood. You fucked with my Instacart for two days. That's it. Because jewel is restocked. Yeah. Right now. Yeah. Period. So I cannot engage anymore in this conversation about peaceful protests. Martin Luther King told us, Martin Luther the King told us that the riot is the language of the unheard. Right. Y'all motherfuckers keep, white folks keep King's name in their motherfucking mouth, but you ain't listening. Y'all said they stuck on that turn of the cheek shit, and it's only, so I only got two. Come on. At what point are we going to have a conversation about what it means for me to defend myself? And why do I, why am I required to be patient and peaceful after 401 years of systemic racism and oppression? Let me get off this soapbox. Other people want to talk. Oh, Lord. I done got tired again. Thank you. Thank you, Carla. You can stay on your soapbox, girl. I, I love it, too, when they bring out, um, I don't know, somebody in their pocket, uh, popular to to talk about being peaceful and calming it down and Van Jones <coughs> oh, and um, who else? I just read I read some arbitrary weirdness by um, Beyonce about the way to you know. I said I, I'm like okay, who is literally in your pocket that you feel that you got to tell other black people? She did really. I gotta find this quote, y'all. But wasn't um, she up on a police car with a crowbar? Wasn't that her? Oh, well. In the Michael Jackson house, smashing a police car, wasn't that her? Uh, yeah that that was that was about that was about a man. That couldn't have been about you know actually. Oh, she was about... out of hot sauce or something. I don't know. <laughs> no, no. Now when she told us to get information, okay, she was on the police car. Okay. It was sinking. That happened. Yeah. Okay. Right. And then, oh wait, um, the world came together for George Floyd. We know there is a long road ahead. Let's remain aligned and focused in our call for real justice. That was uh, the quote on her page. Oh, that's not bad. That's not counter. I didn't say counter. I was just like, it, it seems very um, innocuous. And not mm -hmm. but very call to like calming, like, you know, um, when I hear aligned and focused, to me, I feel like she's saying don't burn no more shit up and don't burn the target. You mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? Well, that's what it just feels like to me. I could be wrong. Chef Sue, what, did, what are you thinking? Um, you know what? I will tell you. <laughs> Since you have asked, what am I thinking? <laughs> um, I'm gonna go a different way. I've I've actually been very impressed with the brother they have in 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 uh, St. Paul, the mayor. Yeah, he's a good brother. Um, particularly once again, in contrast to our local version of mayoral politics, well, I have been very pleased to see somebody resist um, that oppositional placement that Carla talked about that the media tries to use. I have been pleased to watch an elected black official um, do the thing. And, you know, and I'm going to go all the way there. I, there's the last thing I want to see when I watch a black person go to a mic 
uh, that's been elected to office has tried to explain to me how um, they're not there as black people. Oh, Lord. Um, because they were huh. elected by everybody. And um, because I've never once seen an Irish politician say they ain't Irish and that they don't have a responsibility to the Irish community. I've never seen the Italians do it. Never seen the Jewish people do it. I've never nope. seen the Asian people do it. I don't understand why black people get their ass in front of a microphone and say, I have to prove to these white people how my blackness is irrelevant. And, and, to, and, and again, I'll go an extra step. If that is in fact where you are as a black person, you are not any better than the white folks. You are worse. I would rather have you're mentally you're mentally ill. I've been saying this all day. If you are a black person and you are making excuses, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I'm mad. And you are making excuses. Um, you are standing in front of bullets for these white people. You're making excuses. You're saying things like, "Stop the looting, black on black crime." You run in your mouth about all this bullshit. Either either you're mentally ill or you hate your mama. I can't engage with Negroes who are taking this position at this point in history. You are either you either have not gone to therapy yet or you hate your mom. That is the there are only two two uh, um, options right now. Yeah, I, because I, to let I'm sorry. No, no, carry on. No, no, no. <laughs> so, so to, to, to that end, the thing that I am pleased, and I wish I could remember the brother's name, because uh, I didn't know I didn't know St. Paul had a black mayor. I've been to St. Paul. He's amazing. I, I, will, I will, I'm going to Google his name. Yeah. He Melvin a, Carter is the brother's absolutely. name. Say again for Melvin me. Carter. Melvin Carter. Melvin Carter, your people yeah. did well by you, my brother. Yes, all sir. that village that helped raise you are awesome. Because that brother basically stood up and said, so first of all, let's get some shit straight. I'm the mayor. There's some shit come with this job. It's a little distasteful for me, but I won't have to do that. But let's be clear about some mess. These are my people. And no, I am not interested in making my people go home and sit down. Somebody asked him that he wished the riots were, would, would, would be over. He said, well, why would I wish for that? And I was like, well, there we go. See, now somebody, somebody can stand up and be on. He wasn't trying to get out of what he was elected to do. It's his job to make sure people shit don't burn down. I get that. Right. But he wasn't, he wasn't trying to um, place his community on the end of look at these irresponsible Negro types and oh my God, how embarrassing it is for me who have come up from them, and, uh, which is what's happening in my local variety of that. So so that's a big deal. I watched, um, and I'm, since you know I'm going to call the devil out, I watched Kim Fox do the same shit the next day on WGN where she said, oh, we have to hold all of these looters accountable and accountable. And the word accountable came up about like 500 times. And I don't see nobody holding anybody accountable no. in the police department. That's for selective. They are brutalizing Black people in the street right now as curfew arises. Because right. all of that stuff is being complained about. And I don't see her on my goddamn news talking about how all of those officers have to be held accountable. So I understand. I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead. I am disgusted. Oh, no. The, the, can we just pick apart the fraternal order of police, please? So you sure. motherfuckers have allowed. <laughs> I'm sorry, we all off the play. Because I just, I'm bitter. And angry and black. I am, I've been outside. I have a tan now. I'm darker than I've been in weeks. And I can't deal with the hypocrisy. So 
Is it a union or is it a gang? Well. Is it a union or is it a gang? It's a, but, is it a gang that became a union or a union that became a gang? We well, could it's the, examine uh, some of the affiliations that this union gang brotherhood has been making with other gangs, whoops. unions, and brotherhoods. You're all wrong. It's organized crime. <laughs> I had a student who brought up the, there's been so many conspiracy theories that are, you know, now proving themselves true. A student here brought up this idea. Um, he was told that uh, the, the police force in Minneapolis was working with Mexican cartels and stuff. And I was like, I hadn't heard that one before. And then the next day, I started hearing about how um, CPD is working with the Latin Kings, and they're like, they're like jumping brothers, you know, over there. And I mean, yeah, see, I see, yeah, Reggie's nodding about this. And then all of a sudden, all these conspiracy theories aren't theories, and they're not conspiracies. Um, this same young man witnessed a white power um, group, a club, having a rally a block away from his home. His mother's had to send him away to stay somebody, somewhere else for a couple of days because he presented, um, he's a First Nations young kid and he presents as, as such and she was worried about his safety. And so these, these are things that are happening. And that was another good thing that, uh, that Mayor Carter called out that these organizations were co-opting this movement. And at least that is part of the narrative. I think the story is still being driven that, you know, all the cause of all property destruction is black people. But I, I think if you're paying any sort of attention whatsoever, you, or if you just actually open your eyes, you can see that, you know, white people are the main pot stirrers um, in this you entire- mean, uh, You mean uh, like it is crates of bricks showing up in black neighborhoods, crates of bricks on the corner, stuff like that? White guy and hammer on camera. You know, those things are, yeah, it's been pretty obvious. Busting windows, cause- yeah. Yes. It, it is not a conspiracy if motherfuckers are really out to get you. That's right. They, wow. they, we, literally, literally, as our mayor was having the conversation that Reginald is talking about, they were simultaneously showing surveillance video from the downtown incident where it was whole creamy ass white Americans mm -hmm. busting up into somebody's bar and stealing all the liquor. It was, they showed that surveillance video for the whole entirety of that news conference. And I saw one black person go in. Mm -hmm. The rest of them were white. But that is not the narrative that we were getting right. from our, our media. I mean, they are looting, they're animals, they're tearing up their neighborhood. No motherfuckers are tearing up Walmart. Fuck Walmart, and I hope they got some ribs. Yeah, uh, so so I, I will do you this one, Brittany, and we'll connect it back to the to the season thing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm gone. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, because because here, here's here's why the Black Lives Matter season matters, and here's why it matters that it is being done by a black theater company, because the next layer of insult in this equation would be for us as black artists to have to take our scripts to our white producer, our white artistic director, our white board of directors, our white fundraisers and say, please may we put this show up in front of you 
because typically the answer will be, well, maybe not that one because X, Y, Z, white people won't like it. White people will be easily offended. Their feelings will be hurt. I mean, we could do a whole thing about, I mean, just as a quick example, four years ago, I could have been a play about a black dude who decided to take a knee at a football game, but I'm pretty sure white folk would have been real upset about that. But they a black still are. Company, I could do it, right? So, so the question becomes, why, why is it important that black people have the ability to tell our own stories? Right. And this, is, and this is why, because it doesn't even ultimately matter whether or not, as, as, as Brother Douglas said, it's, it's a conspiracy theory or the truth. The issue is this is part of the psychology that is circulating in our community. And as so, it deserves to be brought to light. And as such, it deserves to be discussed. And then we can decide whether or not the conspiracy-like nature of it makes sense or not. Because I'm going to tell you something right now. I'm going to just drop this as a, as a little piece of a, a conspiracy nugget. I'm sure 400 years in Africa, 400 years ago in Africa, somebody was looking at somebody else being like, I think they taking brothers and throwing them in ships and sailing them across the big water. And somebody, and somebody said, said no. that's no. just preposterous. That would never happen. How, how could, who did you, I just snatched him? That's who, a lie. He's not be married no more. Well, I'm just going to say. so sensitive. Sometimes the absurd shit does in fact turn out to be the truth. And it deserves to be looked at. And I have no problem with it. All right, I'm off of that one. I'll, I will step back and let somebody else. No, I mean, <laughs> thank you for that. I was, um, my, my question to you all is, uh, what do you think are, are as, as artists, what do you think are, are the next steps? Um, unfortunately, like we're saying, we're talking about 400 and some odd years ago, what happened. But what do you think about um, our stories going forward um, as, as Black people? What, what else do we need to say besides, hey, this, it, still, it happened and it's still happening? Um, what do you think are some, some, um, some real uh, themes that should, should be out here as artists? And just tell me your thoughts. So here's the thing. It's not about what we create individually. Right. Um, because we're all going to write what we want to write. And some of us are going to write really bold shit. And some of us are going to keep writing August Wilson clips. And that's fine. It is what it is. The question now is, where do you take your money from as an artist? Okay. Who do, who, who, who do you, who have you decided that you will get in bed with as an artist? Okay. Example, playwrights at Victory Gardens, seven out of eight of them walked out because they did a 61-person letter of all the people of color that worked with that organization that said, we need, when Che leaves, we need some transparency in this hiring practice. We need this to be an open call. We need to be able to interview and assess the person that you all want to put in the seat of artistic director board members mm -hmm. and what the board did was say okay and then they gave the shit to erica daniel no tea no shade i don't know it like that but you slid this white girl right on in this space and said well she'll be the artistic director and the executive director wow a woman so corrupt they locked her out of her office 
at uh, when she was fired from Second City, the whitest institution in the city. This hoe got locked out. Now again, I don't know. I ain't, you know, I'm just saying. So those playwrights signed a letter of resignation and they walked. I just saw the email that the ignition playwrights also walked away from Victory Gardens. That's the answer. What are you doing? I asked Writers Theater today, a lame-ass email, their little Facebook post about, we stand with Black Lives. I said, well, then give all that arts and education money back because you ain't doing no diversity, nothing. All you're doing is taking arts and diversity, arts and education money while you sit in Glencoe where Black people can't even go peacefully. All you're doing is taking that money and sending a thousand white little white girls out to black and brown schools to be in a teaching arts. Give them back. The question is no longer about what we create because I believe any black person telling any story is a black story and it's valid. The question sure. is where do we as artists start taking our money from? And we have to stand on it. Mm -hmm. My two cents. The other thing I would say is is equally important is is particularly for I mean now we get we get real serious now right is the biggest the most corrupting thing in in our business isn't just who you work with it's honestly whether or not you are are self censored um, and a, a, an enormous number of writers I know um, will not talk about things in the voice that they hear it, in the voice that they've experienced it, without worrying about how do they figure out how to tailor it for who they think is going to pay for it, consume it. Now, all of that isn't bad. I mean, being deaf to what your audience is, is trying to hear is probably a reasonable thing. But when you do it to the point where you nullify your own voice or you exclude your voice, um, it becomes an issue. And then I'll, I'll go a step further. And then as black writers, we also need to be work, we need to work really, really carefully on how to be more inclusive in the things that we put on stage about our communities. Um, it's still really hard to talk about what, um, so for Pharaoh, the thing that I liked about Pharaoh was the play was about a 17-year-old black girl when the thing on the news was always black men, black men, black men, black men, black men, as if black girls don't have problems with the police as if um, our families are not, um, typically speaking, female-led households. Um, and, and, and so we as artists also have to figure out how to be inclusive of those. I have not written an, an enormous amount of stuff about the, the gay or trans community, but I've written a bit and I understand that they too are having um, trouble getting their stories out. So all of this, um, in the, even in the context of dealing with the police, we're still not really telling the full story about how our community navigates that relationship. And black men are getting killed, and so are sisters, and so is the trans community in enormous numbers. Um, oh, the, the amount of trans black trans women that have been murdered in the last several years is disgusting. Yeah. So that's my that's my answer. ATD, you trying to get in there? I see you you messing with your with your with your cursor. There. I was gonna say I didn't have anything to add on that subject. I just wanted to see if there's anything else 
or anything you'd like to add to our conversation before we jump off of here? Um, Aaron Todd, is there anything else you wanted to say about or anything you're working on right now? No, I'm, I'm, I'm not. I, I would love to um, redirect back to uh, Reggie in particular about where the state of, of our work goes from here. I was really interested to be on this conversation because, you know, pre-BLM, post-BLM, Impact's work has stayed consistent to its, its, its mission. So I'm kind of, I'm really curious to know, and, and he's got tons of ideas. I'm curious to know what the pivot point is. What, um, what are the holes in the game that need to be plugged by angry uh, young black artists? Uh, I, I will say that people in pandemic and people in this unrest period are, I, I like some of the ideas that are coming there really way outside the box. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're almost sci-fi oriented a bit. So I'm just kind of curious where, you know, where Reggie thinks that it's going. I, I liked what Carla said on the subject. The, um, I mean, I, I think that, that, that the possibilities are wide open. I, I here's, here's my big concern. <clears throat> um, because we as as black people generally speaking black artists in particular have had difficulty navigating this landscape when we invite others to come play with us mm. right and so i am not advocating that we need to maintain an all-black universe i am suggesting that when we invite other people to come play with us we do not lose sight of our voice and here's the one and it's tricky and we don't get small and quiet for fear of worrying about hurting everybody else's feelings. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times when I see, um, I see this, this, like for instance, like the movement itself, right? Like, like just on the eyeball test, if you look on the street, the street looks different now than when I was trying to burn it down 30 years ago, right? But that does not mean that black people should be trying to figure out how to get smaller and quieter as other people join into the fray. Um, and so there's this huge sort of pressure on us to now shift our attention to explaining shit to everybody else because apparently nobody else's brain works. Mm. And it's our job as black people to now be the grand interpreters of the structures that we did not build. How do black people explain racism to the people who have literally built the structural institutions? And benefited uh, from it. And continue to. So I, I just find it really interesting that as we are going into these spaces and we're building all of these allied work, that we don't exhaust ourselves under the misguided notion that it is our job to explain white privilege, white power, and white supremacy to the fucking founders and creators of the institutions. That does not mean I want to dampen the enthusiasm that people have for the possibilities of this moment, but if we let that shit slip away and allow our voice to be diverted from its authentic path about who are we and what are we dealing with, then, it's, uh, then we're not there anymore. And then it'll, it'll be, it, the same shit will happen to us that happened to white women in the 70s when they were trying to have a women's movement and they looked up and they got co-opted by everybody and they shit didn't belong to them no more. Mm. Well, I'll say this. Um, and in conclusion. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for in conclusion. Okay. And in conclusion. Um, I have required and requested that all the white people 
that I educate pay me. My cash app is dollar sign Carla Stillwell. My Venmo is is uh, what is that? Carla. I think part of this is that we need to get confident and comfortable in this, especially in this moment with, if you want this education, if you want me to unravel your systems for you, if you want me, if you value this relationship and this gift I'm giving you, you have to pay me. And I had one of the legion of extraordinary white people who listen to the still wealth and pay her say to me but we was going on i don't really have money to pay my black friends i said you can watch some kids and you can clean some house you can right. do some yard work whoa whoa whoa, whoa, whoa whoa that's what we did for, for centuries for them that's not going i mean what you're asking is too revolutionary what i'm saying is we can no longer have this conversation without taxing white people. I agree with Reggie that we cannot fall into the trap of re-explaining the shit we've been talking about. I know me and Reggie have been talking about it on stage for 30 years. We can't fall into the trap of their ignorance. Yes. I will, I will grant you that you may be ignorant. But you gonna pay me to unignorate your ass? No, it's and don't 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 short sell it. It's a cultivated ignorance. You got to work hard to be that. <laughs> um, I love unignorance. When you have unignorance, you got listen with the Google machine. Yeah, and all these sources, you have figured out how to still not know that you shouldn't say all lives matter to me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'll make it. I'm gonna make it plain. If you want this education? I'm taxing you. I'm gonna plug a white woman's book for white people. If you are listening to the Impact Podcast, and you are like, "Where is my Rosetta Stone for whiteness to translate whiteness to <laughs> white shit?" The book is called White Fragility. It is by Robin D'Angelo. That shit is brilliant. As a black person, it is filled with page after page of shit I fucking know. But white people look at it like somebody just discovered how to, to code the fucking DNA genetic genome and shit. And they're like, oh my God, it's amazing. It's like, racism for dumb. Reggie, it's racism for dumb. Macaroni and cheese in a box. That's what yeah, that is. Yeah. I mean, but it's, 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 well, it's racism for racists. That's what it is. Uh, it. And that's, that's what's beautiful about it is now my conversation with my white allies, and yes, I'm saying that my white allies were like, oh my God, what do we do? Well, first, study yourself. Here's your starter kit. Yes. And then go have meetings with other white people that I don't need to attend. Now, Carla might go because y'all could pay her. I'm not even trying to go. <laughs> you don't want to go? Okay. Oh, I, oh, I showed up for a check. <laughs> I'm, tired. I'm tired of the whole conversation because I have spent my, because them motherfuckers will wear you out. Yeah. 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 yeah they you're right. Out. So you, I don't know that you could pay me enough to be that goddamn tired. I, I want to make art. I don't want to spend my life explaining white people to white people, which is not to say that no one should do that. I think they need to invest heavily in figuring out their shit, if in fact they are as ignorant of their own shit as they continue to claim to be. What I don't want to do is spend any of my time doing it. 
And the young people I run into, I really, I just spent a, a day with uh, 10 activists the other day. And my whole thing was, you have to be really careful about your personal energy. So mm -hmm. choose not just who you engage with, but choose when you engage and quit engaging with motherfuckers while your, while your, while your tank is on E. Right. If you already tired, ain't nothing good gonna come out of that, but you saying some shit, you're gonna be sorry you said anyway. So choose your moments or choose not to engage. White folks can figure it out. If they can figure out how to dominate the entire fucking planet, they can figure out their shit without my personal assistance every time they want. And space, and space. They, they figured out how to put a whole rover on Mars to take pictures, but you can't figure the fuck out how not to say all lives matter, a blue lives matter, or talk about that motherfucker taking a knee. You ain't fixed that shit out, but y'all motherfuckers got pictures from Mars. Fuck <laughs> that shit, yeah. fuck it. Un ignoramuses, unignorate thyself. Thank you. Unignorate thyself. They're not as clueless as they what they what they they're not as clueless as they claim to be. What they really are is they're they're conflict averse. Yeah. It means they're in the center of it. And what they really are is um, it, it, there is a certain I was going to say modesty, but it's not modest. There's a certain kind of um, they're they're averse to taking a good look at themselves because it invalidates their achievement. If you think that everything that you have done is because you're wonderful, the last thing you want to hear is you're wonderful because you had a head start. Mm -hmm. You're wonderful because this system is put in place for you to blah, blah, blah. And so by the time we get through unpacking your wonderful, what you are is slightly above mediocre, which I will give you is better than half the folk on the planet. <laughs> but it don't make you 99 percentile stratospheric like you like to believe you are my president. And on that note, I want to <laughs> I want to I want to thank you three for um, spending some time with Impact. It um, it is always a pleasure. Um, we could have this discussion again in a couple weeks about some other stuff. I just want to leave you with a with a super short, quick poem by Langston Hughes, written yes. in 1951. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat? Or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load. Or does it explode? Langston Hughes wrote that in 1951, y'all. Let me, let me throw one other thing at y'all real quick. I know we're at the end, but I want to say this. That was a beautiful, beautiful footnote. Uh, a friend of mine and colleague who works with Dr. Dre said to me today, Dre was just explaining that when NWA did fuck the police, yeah. that they thought their careers were over and that they were going to get murdered in the street. That's what they expected to happen after they put that out. That, mm -hmm. that we don't think about that today as this fearless act of putting your art forth when you think your art can get you killed. Uh, and apparently the other day, um, they were scrambling police scanners using that same song 30 plus years later. So yes, shit does explode. Did the world blow up? No justice, no peace. Everybody be safe out there. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>